It's good to be here together today. We're in uh, the last week of this Now What series, thinking about what it means to be God's people in transition, uh, in the in-between. My way of recap, the first week we looked at the, the moment where Israel is coming out of slavery in Egypt and God goes before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, remembering that God is with us in the transitional time. The next week... Um, God providing manna and quail in the, in the wilderness, God inviting us to choose trust over comfort. They get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up on the mountain with God, and Israel asks for a, an idol, that's something that they can control. Uh, but the reminder is that even in the times when God seems absent, that those are the times that God might be revealing himself most profoundly. And then last week, where Israel asked for a king, we remembered that we already have a king who leads us, goes before us, and fights our battle, so we don't have to put our hopes in a human. So I was thinking about it this week, that um, we've kind of had this little pattern where week after week after week, we've seen this moment of uncertainty, and Israel always pivots to their fear or their anxiety, uh, their insecurity. They choose preferences and comforts and all this. In other words, they choose what humans choose. Uh, they choose what I would choose, like 90% of the time. Um, and so, you know, the, the temptation is to like beat up on Israel like morons, but they, you know, they're, they're human and they make the human choice uh, again and again and again. Because um, they thought, how do we bring this together? You know, I don't know if you resonate with this, but a lot of the, my experience of the Christian life is been more about avoiding the bad than choosing the good. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. Um, I'm not saying we should do the bad. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is there's a difference between not doing the wrong thing and pursuing the right thing. Uh, and week after week, the temptation may be for us as we look at Israel, choose what they chose all the way through the story, would just be to say, okay, those are the bad things. We don't do those. Yeah. But what I would hope is that what would be better for us is if we, if we could name what it is that God calls us to pursue. What is the good that God calls us to pursue? Not just the bad stuff we should avoid, but what is the good that we should pursue? And so I want to do that more intentionally this morning. Uh, look at one final moment uh, here in the story of, of Israel in the Old Testament and try to spend the majority of our time thinking about, well, what is it that we should be pursuing in the middle of that? So... We've gone through this whole thing where Israel's been in slavery in Egypt. I promise I won't do this forever. For some reason, I've just locked in over here. They've been in slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them all the way through the wilderness for 40 years wandering in the wilderness to the promised land. They've gone through this whole uh, season where they've had all the kings, and, and things kind of go off the rails with the kings. Uh, as we said last week, when they ask for a king, they get exactly what it is they're, they're asking for, and things go off the rails. Uh, and God actually uh, orchestrates it such that Babylon um, comes in and, and sort of destroys Jerusalem and carries the people off into slavery a second time, this time in Babylon, and it's what we call uh, the exile. And uh, if you're trying to place this in your, in your timeline, this is uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in, uh, in exile in Babylon. So just so you can kind of timestamp that. Here's what I want to... If you were in their shoes, having heard for generations all the stories of the way that God had worked, and then all of a sudden you find yourself 
in the middle of a city of ruins that had been burnt to the ground by Babylon and then carried off, and now you're their slaves in Babylon, how would you feel? What would that experience be like? I want you to try and put yourself in those shoes. I was thinking about it this week. I think it would feel a lot like what it feels like to be a refugee today. You're driven from your home, and now where you are, nobody really wants you, or at least they seem suspicious of you. There's no way to go back home. You're pretty sure that everyone around you has it out for you, or at least you're worried about it. You're somebody's enemy in one way or another everywhere you go. I think that's got to be what it must have felt like to be this little band of Israelites carried off into slavery in Babylon. So if that's the case, what would you be feeling if you were there? So uh, next, next week we're going to start a series in the Psalms. I'm going to kind of prime the pump a little bit here and read a, read a psalm for us that was written uh, from the perspective of the people while they were in captivity in Babylon. It was written after the fact, but it was kind of like reflecting back on what it felt like to be in, Israel, uh, to be in captivity. I wonder if maybe this rings true of your experience. Uh, full disclosure, it is not an inspiring psalm. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. It's another word for Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, because there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. Sing us the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I don't consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did. That's another way of referring to the Babylonians. Remember what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to the foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them on the rocks. Whoa. That guy wasn't messing around, right? So sometimes we could read the Bible and think, hey, if I read it, that must be what God thinks is like the good thing to think. This is not one of those times. Sometimes the Bible gives us a window into real life, not the ideal life. This would be one of those moments, right? If I was carried off into captivity and had experienced everything that Israel experienced, I might write a similar song to that, you know? I might want revenge, so actually, while it sounds really terrible, I wonder if maybe it's not a, an understandable reaction, maybe a, a human reaction. But I want to set this Psalm 137 mentality next to our passage for today. Because in the middle of a place where it would be understandable to think this, God has a call for the people in mind. It's in Jeremiah 29. And I'm going to read it for you. Uh, there's some bits in here that you, you may have heard before, um, but let's uh, think about it together. In the middle of this transitional period, God has something to say. So in verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. So I'm going to make two real quick observations. First of all, to those I carried into exile. God brought them into this experience. Now, it may be temporary, but it is painful, and it's full of fear and anxiety and hurt, but God brought them into it. So this is now the second major moment that we've witnessed where God has 
pulled his people into a transitional moment of insecurity. Now, this time they were there because of their sin, but that's not really the point that I want to make. The point I want to make is that God draws his people into transition out of slavery and into exile, so it doesn't matter if God is setting you free or trying to get your attention. God is sort of in the business of pulling his people into transitional space so that he can do something. And then the second thing is this word exile, again, to, to notice that God has put them in exile on purpose. Last week when we looked at that First Peter passage where Peter calls the church living stones, he says, guess what, you're exiles in the world. So our identity as the church is very similar to this moment here in Jeremiah. So I want us to keep that in our brains. It's, God's writing some to exiles, and as the church, if we're exiles, then maybe we should pay attention. So let's keep reading. What is the call for a people in exile, in transition? What are they called to do? In verses 5 through 7, God says this, I've carried you into exile, but build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters there. Increase in number there and don't decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So I want us to think about that, because this is the call that God gives Israel in their transitional exile experience. And I think there's two layers here, and I consider them both uh, together. The first layer is a layer that I call, uh, would, would think of as build and settle. Right, And it's here in the very first few verses. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. They too can have sons and daughters. So there's, there's this building element, right, of houses and gardens and marriages and children. But then there's this settled notion to it. Don't just build them, but settle down. So I think about this because at the very beginning of Psalm 137, it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. I always get this mental picture of a bunch of Israelites like sitting on the riverbank on their suitcases, just waiting to get back to where they want to be. And God says, no, don't sit on your suitcase, build a house and settle down. Did you notice how many generations of Israelites are going to grow up in Babylon? This is the audience participation moment. <laughs> Three, right? He says, I want you to get married and have kids and raise them up so that they can get married and have kids. Three generations of Israelites are going to grow up in Babylon. So you can't sit on your suitcase, friends. You've got to put down roots You've got to build a life here. Make your home here in Babylon. I am always struck by this first part because it is incredibly ordinary. There's nothing flashy about that. It's not an exercise in that. It's an exercise in the ordinary. And I think, if we could put it this way, that what God wants them to do in Babylon is just be human. Just be human because do you remember another time in the Bible where God told his people, that the point that they were supposed to, their job was to take care of gardens and get married and have kids and increase in number and don't decrease. Do you remember another time when God said something along those lines? In the Garden of Eden, right? It was the original job of Adam and Eve. And God says, I want you to do the same thing here. 
I want you to do the same thing here, the job of being human, what it means, the essence of what it means to be made in the image of God, that never changes. We're called always to be people who create, who do the ordinary tasks of being human, wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever God has put us. And that's what God is reinforcing for Israel. The very job of Eden now gets worked out in the gardens of Babylon. So, for people in between, I think that's a question we ought to be asking ourselves. How do we do the same thing? How do we put down roots in the place God has put us to do the very ordinary work of building and tending to the little bit of ground that God has given us to pay attention to? You know that song, I'll Fly Away? I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Do you know that song? That's Psalm 137, unfortunately. That's sitting on our suitcase at the side of the river, being like, I can't wait to get out of here. And as much as I love that song, and I love that song, it is that very notion that God calls Israel out of. God says, don't fly away, put down roots. As a church, I'll say this, this is, I think, one of the most compelling things about Living Stones to me, as I come in from the outside, the way that you all say, I love the South Side, that to me is a declaration that this is a church committed to putting down roots in the place that God has put us. And it doesn't have to be flashy. It just has to be human. But here's the challenge, I think, that, that, that Jeremiah has for me always, too, is does our commitment to the place that God has put us as a church or as families, because I know we don't all live here on the south side, but God has put us in particular places to build and to settle. Do we have that same kind of generational vision for all those places? Like what would change about the south side where we think about our ministry and what would change about the, the place that you live if when you looked around you said, you know what, it's not just me who's going to live here. My kids are going to live here and my grandkids are going to live here. What would be different? I want you to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. So the very first layer is this idea of build and settle. Put down roots in the place that you have been put. The second layer is we could call seek peace and pray. And it's right here in verse 7. I want to focus in on this a little bit. So all this ordinary stuff, and then God says, Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So uh, this, this is a, an important thing, this seek peace and pray. When, when you read the Bible and you read this word peace, um, it really means something much more than the absence of conflict. When we think of the word peace in English, that's a lot of times always the war ended, so now there's peace. Um, but the word that is here is hard to get around. You've probably heard the word shalom before. So shalom doesn't just mean absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness. Uh, for there to be shalom means that, that nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Everything is as it should be. So that's where we get the word peace. To, to say that something is full of shalom means that it is at peace. Everything is as it should be. So when God says, I want you to seek the wholeness of the city that you have been sent to, there's an indication there that something about Babylon is broken, right? Incredibly, God wants to work through this little band of Israelites as they go about being very ordinary 
to bring redemption and restoration and renewal to what is broken all around them. So if build and settle is this reminder of their original call all the way back in creation, then this seek peace and pray is an invitation into the call of recreation, of joining with God and the mission of putting the broken pieces of Babylon back together. And so as they go about their daily lives, building and settling, there will be opportunities to participate in Babylon being made right, in Babylon being made whole again. This is what God wants for Israel, but it's also what God wants for Babylon. And if Israel hears that, that God wants to see Babylon made whole again, that would sort of challenge that Psalm 137 mentality, wouldn't it? It would be pretty hard to to want to see Babylon made whole and hold on to that. I know God wants me to be made whole, but he wants them to be made whole too? Well, the same is true for us. God wants to make South Bend whole. God wants the South Side to be a place where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. God desires for this city the same thing he desires for you. The same thing he desires for us. There's nothing more inherent in us that makes God want to do more redemption in us than in everybody else. This is what made Jonah freak out. He couldn't handle that fact that God wanted something for Nineveh that he wanted to keep to himself. God is saying, listen, it's not just Israel that gets this. The whole world gets this. Babylon gets it too. To be God's faithful people even in a transitional time, we're still called to put down roots in the place God has us and seek the wholeness of the city, to seek the wholeness of our place and the people that we've been called to. I want to keep pushing into this a little bit. The second half of this verse, God says, pray to the Lord for for Babylon because if it prospers, you too will prosper. If Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. So I think this kicks against a couple of... ways that we think about ministry, or at least it, it holds a couple of things in tension. So I usually think about ministry as like, well, God has, God has done a work in my life, God has done a work in our lives, and so we go out to change the world. There's an element of that. But this isn't what God's saying here. It's actually flipped. It's not me taking the change. It's saying I experience what the city experiences. That what I am experiencing from God only comes if the city experiences it. If Babylon prospers, I also will prosper. So I want to pause just a minute. This word prosperity is a little tough uh, for us today. Sort of our modern American lens, we hear the word prosperity. Uh, If you're like me, I think about wealth accumulation. That's what prosperity means. And, you know, lots of people are freaked out about a prosperity gospel. So they see this word in the Bible, and it's hard to know what it means. But now, don't think about it through our lens. Try to put ourselves in a place where it was pretty, pretty overwhelmingly agricultural. And think about uh, planting a seed in the ground or a farmer looking out over their field. And if a farmer were to say, the field prospered, the farmer wouldn't be saying the f- the field accumulated wealth, right? What they would be saying is that in every one of those seeds is potential. There's potential in every one of these seeds for life and for fruit. 
And for a field to prosper, it means that what went into the ground as potential was realized. That what was intended to be born out of it, the good that could come from it, came from it. So actually, a word that I like is the word flourish. But that's what they were saying. The field flourishes when it produces what it was intended to produce. If Babylon flourishes, it'll produce what it was intended to produce. All of the potential for life and fruit will have been realized. And guess what? That's when you will flourish. If Babylon flourishes, you will flourish. God wants Israel to see that their flourishing is bound up with Babylon. Because they share this common space and they share a common future, they're tied up together. Israel's not going to flourish unless Babylon does. And this is important because, remember Psalm 137, because if I'm sitting on my suitcase listening to tormentors demand songs of joy from me, having carried me into exile and burned Jerusalem to the ground, I am probably going to view them as the people getting in the way of my flourishing, right? My flourishing's not bound up with yours. You're keeping me from flourishing. Nope, that's not what God says. God says, you can flourish here, but really only if Babylon flourishes too. So that Psalm 137 is kind of us versus them, you know? There's an enemy that us versus them isn't going to help. You have to be able to move from us versus them to we. That's why this whole idea is tied to the notion of praying for the city. It's tied to the notion of praying for the city. Because what happens when you pray for someone or when you pray for a place? It's the same thing that happens when you cheer for the Irish. Charlie woke up this morning and said, who won the game? And I said, we did. But I didn't play in that game. <laughs> but my cheering for the Irish bridged the distance between us and them. It allowed me to create a we in my own heart. Praying for a city will have that same effect. Praying for a city will bridge the relational distance that exists between us and them until we becomes possible. A few years ago, I was leading a, a session for a church in Lansing, Michigan. And we, we, we did this uh, morning session, and then during the lunchtime, we went out to do a, a prayer walk in the community. And we went out and did it, kind of everybody in their own space, and came back, and there was this older gentleman, he's a little curmudgeon and I wasn't sure what he was going to say. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't sure what he was thinking, because he kind of had this scowl on his face. So I realized I kind of have a scowl on my face a lot, too. But I asked him how it went, praying in, in, the, in the community. He said, well, you know, I went to the place where my business is, I've been in this neighborhood for like 30 years, and the neighborhood has changed. It's gotten rough, it's dirty, it's ugly, people don't respect it, people are breaking stuff all the time. I've hated it forever. This sounds like I wrote it for this sermon illustration, but he said, but you know what happened? I started walking around and praying, started seeing things I'd never seen before. I started seeing um, some beautiful things in the neighborhood. I started seeing some some." Uh, some possibilities, like some neat things that God might want to do. I saw the people in a different way. 
this place that he had, he had started to become this like, this us versus them. Like these people are getting in my way of enjoying my work. Now this had become this place where he started to see something beautiful, something with possibility. I think this is an incredibly important spiritual discipline for a church that wants to put down roots and seek the peace of their city. Because we live in a world that's like hell-bent on reinforcing the divides between us and them. You know what I mean? Like if not enemies, we're really trained to see others as competitors, as obstacles to the life that we want. You know, I was watching uh, the Ryder Cup yesterday. If you ever watch golf on TV, uh, you know that like every other commercial is a financial planning commercial. A lot of nods. Okay, good. And every, every other commercial is a financial planning one, and they're all the same, right? It's, it's always some older gentleman who has a full head of hair, um, <laughs> and he's sanding down the side of his boat, and he looks across the bow of the boat, and he sees his grandkids running, and that's where they get you, right? Because the minute he looks over and sort of gratifyingly looks at the life that he's created for his grandkids, I start freaking out like, I'm not, I don't have my money in the right place, and I'm not going to be able to do that. You know what I mean? Here's what I want to say. The impulse to want a better life for your grandkids is good and full of virtue. But the dark underbelly of the world that we live in is that we intuit that everyone else around us is a threat to me being able to create this picture for my kids and my grandkids. So we use words when we're thinking about our finances like we want to get ahead. Of who? We want to get ahead because everyone else is a competitor for the life that we want. The quest to build a better world for ourselves, for our kids, and for our grandkids. Here's the thing. That generational vision that I think is good, but Jeremiah outlines just flips that whole notion on its head. Instead of seeing others as competitors in the race to create a better life for my kids and my grandkids, God says, no, you and your kids and your grandkids aren't going to flourish until they flourish too. Because you're all in this together. It is not a competition. So when uh, my boys first started playing baseball, I signed up to coach. Not because I had this like deep-seated desire to coach, uh, but because when I was a kid, I had some, some bad experiences with coaches, right? Like people that would freak out and and like scream at you if you did something wrong and all this. It's like, I'm nine. I barely can remember to tie my shoes. Like, I, I'm not going to be able to turn a double play. <clears throat> and so I signed up to coach. My driving motivation was because I didn't want Josiah and Levi to experience that, right? I wanted to try as best I could to prevent them having that kind of terrible experience. And if they did, it was my own fault. Um, but... I, so I get out there, and I start to realize, like, I got 13 of these little fellows running around, you know, and they don't all come from homes that are super stable. A lot of them experience a lot of crisis, a lot of chaos. They all have some sense of, like, missing shalom in their life. There are things that are missing. There are things that are broken. And it was a really hard lesson for me, and I feel like I'm still learning it in a lot of ways. But if I go into, the, into that situation intent on making sure that my kids flourish, that they get all the opportunities to get what they can get out of it, 
then all those other kids will suffer as a result of it. But if I go into that situation and my goal is to make sure that every kid flourishes, well, they're not left out of that. They get to flourish too. I think that's what God is saying here. Until what we want for our kids is what we want for all the kids, and until we want for our grandkids is what we want for all the grandkids, we will still be operating out of that Psalm 137 mentality of us versus them. But the extent to which we can say we in the place God has put us is the extent to which we have embraced the vision that God gives Israel here in Jeremiah 29 and praying for a place and for a city and for a neighborhood and for our neighbors that draws us into that common experience. It helps shorten the distance between us and them, makes we possible. And the shameless plug here is that our fall family night in October, this is exactly what we're going to do. Exactly this is pray for the place that God has put us, both here on the south side and then all of the places that where we live. So that's the call for a people in between, for a people in transition. The call is to build and to settle, to seek peace and to pray, to put down roots where God has us right now and join in the work of putting the broken pieces back together. Here's the little caveat at the end. That is hard work. And it is not always easy. It can be very discouraging. And I, th- I can't even imagine Israel listening to this and looking around at all these people who have tormented them and pulled them into slavery and done all of this, totally destroyed their way of life, listened to Jeremiah say this to them and thought, excuse me? These people? I think God anticipated that. Not sending them into a very difficult call and just say, you know what, keep trying harder, keep trying harder, keep trying harder. I think God gives us vision of hope so that we can lean into that as fuel and motivation for it. So if we were to keep reading, right after God says, do all of, build, settle, seek peace, and pray, then God says this, beginning in verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then the graduation card verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you and bring you back. God gives Israel hope. It's the fuel for the work of seeking peace in a place that doesn't feel like home. One day I'm going to make it right, God says. So lean in today because one day all the pieces will be put back together. We have a similar kind of hope, and I know this to be true, that in my life there are days when I look around at where God has me And the brokenness I see in my own life, in my own neighborhood, in this city, and think, really? But we don't go into the work of building and settling and seeking peace and praying without hope. We go into the work knowing that one day God is going to make it right. At least this is the picture we get in Revelation 21, where God says this, 
John sees this. I think we have it on the slide, Revelation 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is Jesus, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write it down, because these words are trustworthy and true. That's where the story is headed. And so don't read words like this and think, Let's just go there. No, we read words like this and we say, okay, while we're here, then we can build and we can settle and we can seek peace and we can pray. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, if I'm just taking stock of my own life, I see all of the ways in which things are missing and things are broken. And I think if we were honest as, a, as this church, we would say, to, to be your people doesn't exempt us from lack of peace and lack of flourishing. And yet we gather here and we live life together and we go out into the world as people who trust that you are putting our brokenness back together. And so we pray that you would help us to see the world as you do. That it is not just our brokenness that you're putting back together, but the brokenness is being put back together. And that amazingly, you have us in particular places to be a part of that work alongside of you. Give us the grace uh, to step into that work as exiles along with Israel to be people who can seek the peace and the prosperity of the place you have us and the people you have us among. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.